The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zinn for a spin. Zinn nicotine pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction. Anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. Get in gear with the Zinn 10 Challenge and enjoy 10 smoke-free, spit-free days for just $5.95. Order online and start your new journey today. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brent Forrester. I was a writer and producer at The Office. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining me again. This is The Office Deep Dive, and as always, I am your host, Brian Baumgartner. Today, we are continuing our mini-dive, if you will, into the writer's room with the one and only Brent Forrester. Brent joined the writing staff in Season 3, which, as he talks about in this conversation, (laughs) this was not an easy thing to do. I mean, there were some real heavy hitters in the writer's room at that point. So how did he survive? Well, with the help of an army survival manual. That's right. He used an army survival manual to survive the writer's room at the office. And eventually he became a a real key part of the team and wrote some amazing episodes, including one that uh, several of the other writers consider to have in it the best moment in the entire show. I'm not talking about the chili scene, but, but Brent did direct that scene, all of which we talk about in great detail very shortly. I am so glad I got to sit down with him because he is so smart and thoughtful, and he was super candid about the writer's room, both the good and the bad, Uh, I know you guys are going to absolutely love this one. So here he is, Mr. Brent Forrester. Bubbling 
squeak, I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every morning. Left over from the night before. circumstance of off endless office reunion for yourself I, everybody yeah from laverne to oh, good you friend. and kevin riley and everybody everyone it's been amazing mm-hmm. how generous people have been and yeah we're all hams too want to talk about it <laughs> exactly <laughs> Yeah. Never, never underestimate the power of just untapped narcissism. I would say. <laughs> how how is Space Force going? Oh, so fun! Oh, I mean, how? Yeah. Um, it stars Steve Carell and John Malkovich as the comedy yes. pairing at the center. Greg Daniels wrote the pilot uh, with Steve, and uh, you know Greg's influences is, is all through it. As is Steve's. You know, he has this. Uh, interesting sensibility, which is not uh, always what you would expect. You know, the, the direction he went in the office with naturalism, which is so great. He also has a silly side, which is appropriate to a show like this. That's very cool. Now, your podcast, by the way, do you guys, are you like Mark Marin level, let's get emotionally self-revelatory? Or are you more history of the podcast? It's definitely... Neither of those. (laughs) Um, I mean, how I'm viewing it, well, I truly am actively seeking the answer to some questions that I have about what went on and how things were constructed. Yeah. And it's like anything with memory, Mm -hmm. some things I firmly believe I remember. Uh And then as I talk to people, I realize I I remember incorrectly Mm -hmm. or... There's different perspectives on that. So, yeah, I uh, I think for me, more than anything, it's just conversation. Uh-huh. Well, we, we, should, uh, we should win then because it's my favorite thing. I, every time I've been in this kind of situation, there hasn't been enough time. It oh, we, have like- time. <laughs> uh, we have time. We have time. So um, prior to the office, what were you doing immediately before you got brought on? Um, well, you know, my career started way back in the in the tailing, uh, dying end of the multicam era. I got my first job on a show called Nurses, which was a multicam show put on by uh, Whit Thomas Harris. They had done The Golden Girls, and you know there were these factories of multicam right. in the late '80s and early '90s. And uh, you know, so I come out of there. Then I had been on The Simpsons. Is how I knew Greg. But now was that Susan Susan Harris? Yeah, I hear it was your first sort of mentor. Was oh yeah, that? big time. Yeah, yeah, big time. Yeah, you know, I I had actually gone to high school with her son, and when I came out of college, I had literally Brian trained myself to be a short story writer. Okay, and that I didn't realize there was no money in short stories. <laughs> I mean, if if you take it even farther back, I was raised in a house with no television. My mom hated TV and would not allow it in the house. Yeah, and so I had no television, and th- I I picked that up as a habit, not watching television, and I continued in that habit through college. So when I got out of college, I had trained myself 
to be an expert in a dying art form. Nobody told me that short stories weren't popular anymore because uh, my mom had prevented me from uh, having any contact with modern right. culture. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, anyway, the, the, the relevance is that I graduated college and thought, oh man, uh, can I be a writer of some kind? It just so happened I only knew one person who was a, a professional writer. And it was Susan Harris, the creator of The Golden Girls. I lucked into a mentorship of sorts with one of the greatest uh, natural dialogue writers ever. Right. Susan Harris. So she helped you get the job on Nurses originally? Straight up or? gave it to me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, uh, her son had a lot of friends uh, who wanted to be TV writers. Um, to my knowledge, I was the only one that she ever gave a job to. And I think the reason was she just told me how to write a spec script. And she said, write about what is difficult for you, even painful, and trust that it will come out funny. And I've never heard better advice in comedy writing. And I tried to do that in the form of a spec blossom. Blossom? Yeah. That was my winning spec that got me in the industry. Blossom. Blossom? Yeah. Okay. So you work on nurses, then you work on a number of other shows. Yeah, well, I was I was through with her or No, I was actually I was fired from nurses with the entire staff. They just replaced the staff. It was a it was a pretty bad show even at the height of bad television. <laughs> right? And they just said we have to replace these writers. I'd only worked there about, you know, 4 months. And just long enough to uh, see that there was this thing that was the punch-up writer, and there was this reverence for the writer who could throw jokes and comedy into a script in that rewrite process. So I saved my little amount of nurse's money and stretched it out for like a year and just tried to teach myself joke writing and display what I'd learned in the form of a spec Roseanne script. And you know that's the writer's life is like, a lot of time writing what you hope is a spectacular spec script. And I happened to get that Roseanne in the hands of a young comedian who was becoming a producer named Judd Apatow. Uh, Apatow was 24. He had uh, met Ben Stiller in line at an Elvis Costello concert. And they the stories, they just kind of hutzpahed each other into like selling a TV show. What's your name? Ben Stiller. What do you do? I'm an actor. Yeah. Who are you? Judd Apatow. What are you? I'm a comedian. Write stuff. Oh, yeah. Let's sell the show. Okay, let's do it. And they went to Fox and sold the Ben Stiller show. <laughs> Wow. And so you got a job on that through the Roseanne spec. Yeah. And then you you end up winning an Emmy. Yeah. Yeah. It was incredible. I mean, it was really Bob Odenkirk is why we won that Emmy. You know, he was the head writer of the show. He uh, also created uh, Mr. Show with Bob and Dave, right. you know, for sure, one of the greatest sketch shows ever. Um, and Bob was the head writer and under his influence of uh, a group of totally untested writers won the Emmy for best comedy writing uh, that year. And, you know, for me at that point, I had a Emmy and about like a year of television writing experience. And then they put me on The Simpsons and that's where I met Greg and was truly tested. So you worked on The Simpsons for what, five years? No, actually I worked uh, two full years. Two full years. I had a four-year contract and I bailed after two years. I, I one of the craziest self-destructive moves in a weird way. <laughs> I, but I was young. I was in my 20s. I'd sure. worked there for two years. I felt like I've learned everything there is to learn about writing for The Simpsons. And so I quit. Okay. And uh, had a memorable, like, had to have a showdown with Jim Brooks where they called me into his office. And and Brooks, uh, he said, hey, man, I hear you're on strike, man. I, do you know Brooks at all? No. I mean, I've met him, seen him, but I don't know him, no. Well, I 
I don't think he would know me for right. sure, but we all worship him. He is like one of the Mount Rushmore guys of our medium. Right. And uh, he's a genius and he's got kind of a hippie vibe, but somehow I enraged him by saying this thing that writers all knew to say, which was, hey, I, I don't think you'd want to have a writer in the room who doesn't want to be there. We were always told like amongst each other that you could get out of a contract if you just simply <laughs> said that. So I said it to Brooks. He got enraged, man. His beard was shaking. And he said, don't go down that road. Don't float that balloon. I've never heard that phrase in my don't life. Don't float that balloon? Don't float that balloon. It might be like a World War II reference. Like, <laughs> I don't know. If you meet him, please tell him I'm sorry and ask him what that means. I will. Okay, but you meet you meet Greg. Yeah, that's right. You meet right. Greg while you're there. Mm -hmm. And eventually you start working on King of the Hill with Greg. Yeah, that's right. So he liked you. He did. He did. Uh, now, Greg was like one of those um, senior writers uh, on The Simpsons, at least in my view. He was one of those Harvard guys who was clearly a genius. The whole staff was Harvard guys when I showed up there. Uh, you know, I was sort of in the second wave. There was the Harvard guys who created the show. And then after four years, half of them went off to do their own thing. Right. And so all these slots opened up and I got in one of those slots. Now, Greg was already there. And, you know, Greg was obviously just a great writer of uh, of this show. He wrote some of the best episodes ever. Bart Sells His Soul is still just, I mean, untoppable. Right. And, and very Greg, you know, because Greg liked that kind of telling a yarn sort of storytelling. He was even then heading in the direction of naturalistic storytelling that you see in King of the Hill and then The Office. It's funny because my perspective is slightly different. I remember, I'm sure you and I had this conversation, especially in later seasons, where we would read a script and we would start looking at it and I would go up to the writer's room or have conversations with clusters of you saying, guys, guys, I am not a cartoon. There are physical things that you are writing right now that my body isn't capable of doing. So let's, let's, I can't go from yeah. here to here in no time like you can in a cartoon. Oh. I always, yeah, I, I, there was definitely some Homer Simpson elements. Oh, that's uh, funny. Well, you hit on end. you know you hit on a key thing that writers have as a deficit. You know, we are not out there physically acting. We're all in our little minds, and you know we're we're rewarded for what pops on the page. Right. And so you know we violate these rules. Whereas an actor, you go, How, "What are you thinking?" We're like, <laughs> "We're just trying to preserve our jobs by making the other guy in the room laugh." And we, you know, if it breaks reality, we just we can't be bothered. Right. And so by the time you came in in season three, were you watching, um, were you watching the office? The, I, the American I had version? seen some, although I continued my, uh, habit of not watching much TV, uh, until recently where I've really forced myself to become a consumer. So, uh, I was aware of it for sure because the comedy writers were aware of it. The comedy writers and tastemakers were aware of the British show and we were aware of the American show for sure. And then of course, you know, I knew Paul Lieberstein from uh King of the Hill. He was a writer on King of the Hill. Yeah. And so, you know, Paul and I hang out and you know, we'd go for a for a jog and he would tell me about this show he was working on. I do remember when Paul said to me, "All I want in my career is for this show to go on." That was season 2. Wow. He had that feeling. I'd never heard him say that about anything he'd ever worked on. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so you came in season three. Yeah. Do you remember anything about walking into the writer's room 
Uh, you knew some of the people yeah. there about, yeah, sure, sure. go ahead. Oh yeah. Well, you know, writer's rooms are very competitive, right? It's a very competitive environment. We are trying to impress each other that we're smart and talented and we have a method, which is uh, time to say something funny and who can do it. And so I definitely remember the first day I walked into the, the office writer's room, Mike Schur was there uh, and uh, Paul Lieberstein Jen Salata, and, uh, and I knew it was going to be brutal. So I had brought in a prop. I brought in an army survival manual, and I just had it with me. I thought that's supposed to be kind of funny to call out the subtext, right? right. Like I'm in this writer's room where nobody <laughs> knows me or wants me on this show that they created. And so I'll have this army survival manual. And in it, there's an acronym that the army has, uh, S-U-R-V-I-V-A-L. And each of those letters has a thing you're supposed to do, S you know, survey the situation. You understand the risks. Are. It's impossible. In a survival situation, you would die just Try, trying to remember what the second V well, is. Well, what's right? V again? There's, yeah, two, right. there's two Vs. Yeah. One of them is vanquish, fear, and panic, okay? I mean, you never say vanquish in your life. I love that you remember this, though. That's amazing. Well, it was All my right. yeah. it was my way of surviving. I figure if it gets tight in here, I'm going to have a whole bit I can do, right? right. I, I never busted that out, but I do remember it got contentious on the first day. It was, you know, just one of those kind of ego things. <laughs> we, were, we were arguing over some plot point. Should the story go this way or should it go that way? And so we just got into some disagreement and I just went into an English accent. <laughs> I mean, why would you do that? Right. Did it help or did it hurt? Absolutely helped. I mean, it diffused everything. And then on some level, it kind of says, we're playing a game of comedy, performative cleverness. And this is just a move in that right. dimension. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Wark, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. 
You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. Is getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine, and I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Do you consider Greg a teacher? Oh, for sure. Yeah. He's a friend of mine forever now. And we were in the trenches at the Simpsons, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. every yeah. single day. So, you know, we're all buddies, but for sure, big time. He, uh, someone, someone told us this exercise that he had a, something that if you were having trouble breaking stories and he called it unlikely duos mm. and there were note cards on the wall with mm -hmm. all the characters' names. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to pick two characters that mm -hmm. you would not necessarily associate with each other together mm -hmm. and then write a story on that. I think that's always a great method. Um, early on, back on Nurses, for me, I asked one of the senior writers there, what makes a story? And the guy uh, called me into his office. His name was Bruce Ferber. He closed the blinds, shut the door, locked it. And he said, a story is usually about two people. And then he unlocked the door and made me leave. <laughs> it sounds so commonplace, but it's actually the key. Right. Yeah, that's what's great is what's an unusual pairing. That's how I got my first Simpsons episode was I paired Homer versus Patty and Selma. It had never been done before, so I got an episode. Right. But for sure on any show, you know, what two characters have never been in a story together? Do that. Right. Oh, that's genius. It's the small attention to details. When you know the characters and how the characters would behave, mm -hmm. you almost don't need anything more than this. Mm -hmm. I was told that during the testing of the show with the Jims and the Dwights, the direction from Greg to the actors was very simply, uh, Jim, bring Dwight a glass of water. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And then what happens, right? You know Dwight is going to be skeptical, right? Right. Because you know, you know, he is afraid that Jim has done something to the water. Yeah. And I felt like you guys did such a great job of of that, of studying the character's behavior and mm-hmm. how each character would behave in a given situation. No, you've you've, you've hit it on the head. And if you notice, uh, ask Greg what his favorite television show is of all time. I remember he was being interviewed and he sat there for an hour trying to think, you know, and asking the writers what they thought. It was Larry Sanders. And uh, Judd Apatow, if you ask him, he'll give you the same answer. I worked with Judd on a show called Love we did for Netflix. I was the head writer there. And I remember we delivered scripts to Judd, the first four scripts. I thought they were good. They were real clever and funny. And he was so bummed. And he, as he tried to articulate what it was, he said, watch the Larry Sanders show. And in, by the end, we had a a phrase, a motto, and it was behavior over banter. I never forgot it, man. You know, you don't have to have clever wordplay if the characters are in an interesting behavior. Now, I can tell you two behaviors that are funny for actors. One is lying, always funny. <laughs> right. The other generally is seduction. Unless the person, I suppose, is really hot, it's going to be kind of funny. Right. So I wonder for you as a comic performer, you know, you're talking about the glass of water thing, which is complex behavior. Are there other categories of behavior that are funny for you to perform? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Um, for me, the biggest laughs that I ever remember was when Holly was told that Kevin was slow. <laughs> that's that that was my recollection and people went sort of bonkers about it and I think the reason why is because it was a j- very simple joke. Yeah. That is set up by years of history yeah. and knowing the character. And as soon as you hear the setup of that, yeah. you know instantly that she will believe it <laughs> and that there will be confusion between her and Kevin that could play out as long as we wanted it to. I think that when you truly, when you have the time to create a character and there's an expectation from an audience on how that character would respond, yeah, the anticipation of that and delivering that or the opposite of what the expectation is to me those things are very funny wow that's gold um you at one point said this it has been said by wiser artists than me that the more personal you make your writing Mm -hmm. the more personal it will become Mm -hmm. um do you feel like you write personally I aspire to, for sure. Our medium is very interesting because it's collaborative, and I am hired to execute the vision of somebody above me. And, you know, I've come to think of the writer's room uh, as an art project. The the showrunner is the artist of the show. That's the Picasso, and we're all there to sort of make his or her vision come to life. Having said that, when you get an individual episode, at a certain point, they send you off, and that's when the art form becomes yours and you really try to pour yourself into it. So on The Office, I always did try to find what was personal about it for me in that episode. Yeah, Right. Um, So you join in season three. We've got this uh, Stanford story, Jim is Away. And your first episode that you wrote was The Merger. Yeah. um, Which was about uh, the branches coming together or really them being folded uh, into Scranton. But nonetheless, you have new people coming in. Mm-hmm. Was there anything about your personal experience 
entering this show or entering the writer's room mm -hmm. that mirrors some of the Stanford people coming over? Oh, yeah. I think it's very common in any dynamic. Uh, if you have a workplace and somebody new comes in, there's going to be a feeling of like, we're the old guard, right? Um, that was always true in every writer's room I've ever been in. Uh, I know it was true. I shouldn't say I know, but I could feel it in the actors, new actors coming into the office. Of course, there's going to be a period of almost testing, I would think. You know that co that goes on subconsciously. I've never met a nicer group of people than the uh, actors on The Office. But as professionals, there's this sense of, "Hey, we're trying to do something at the highest level. Are you can you step in and do this?" Um, so it wouldn't surprise me that the the new actors felt really challenged when they when they first came in. Yeah, there's a weird sort of dichotomy that existed on the show, right? So when you think of The Office, it's really about the bullpen. It's about the same group of people that exist in this same place over nine years. But of course, when you just back up a little bit, it's really not true. And I feel like you guys did a great job of creating energy by infusing that stasis mm -hmm. with new people or, mm -hmm. you know, even making Jim go away. That creates a different yeah. environment. Um, I, I thought that you guys did a, a really great job in in keeping that energy while still maintaining the feeling that nothing is changing. Brilliantly said. I mean, I think the lion's share of the credit probably goes to Greg and his three-dimensional chess that he plays with <laughs> his mind. I remember Greg had figured out that TV shows should have arcs before anybody did. You know, TV historically, you're watching individual episodes that could literally be shuffled in syndication. They were designed to be unrelated to each other. Right. And Greg recognized that arcing out was the new way of doing things. He was reading Game of Thrones and, and Game of Thrones started airing. And he's like, oh my God, they're benefiting from the fact that they know where they're going long-term. And suddenly he was applying this very arky mentality to the show. Yeah. One of the other writers was talking to me about um, that there were mini arcs, medium arcs, yes. and longer arcs, right? Yes. So like the Charles Minor storyline, for example, that was a, a set arc, six yes. episodes or whatever yes. it was. And then some, especially the relationship type arcs, mm -hmm. there would be sort of a plan. Yes. And if it wasn't creating the kind of energy you wanted, then it would just sort of go away, right? Or yeah. if it was, then it would sort of pick up again. But it was always sort of intended to be at least some sort of arc. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about those romantic long-term arcs we discovered that you didn't have to advance them every episode, that yes. they could just stick around and then six episodes later they could advance. And then, of course, we had this crazy turn in uh, season nine where we were going to split Jim and Pam up and the audience hated it so much we just bailed on that <laughs> and uh, kept them, you know, together. Right. Yeah. How much were you all influenced by what you were reading or experiencing from fans? I personally never got online. I still am not on any social media. You know, I'm catching up to television. Give me one medium at a time. But, <laughs> but people did for sure, especially in the early years of The Office, coincided with the early years of big time internet feedback. And it for sure influenced the show. I bet somebody on this podcast has mentioned that they were reading uh, online comments and it skewed the Jim Pam thing massively because... Who writes comments online? Apparently, it's disproportionately <laughs> romantic lonely hearts. Right. And that's really what they wanted to see. Right. Um, the history of television primarily has existed, it has been pointed out to me, 
as the central characters are the young lovers, right? Mm. Uh, Mary Tyler Moore show or, you know, really even Cheers, right? I mean, the central storyline is is Sam and Diane. Most of those shows have the crazy uncle or the crazy boss in the background that comes in, gets a few laughs and leaves. Whereas the office inverted that, right? You had the crazy boss sort of out front and the moments between the young lovers existed sometimes in a gesture mm-hmm. or a look. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about how you feel like that that helped the Jim and Pam. Wow, <clears throat> it's really interesting what you're pointing out. The office is structurally quite unusual. You know, you have shows that are center and eccentrics. That's Taxi with Judd Hirsch at the center and everybody else is a character actor. And that's a, that's a conventional structure. Um, the office... In an odd way, it splits things tonally a little bit. You have a a big, powerful comedy star at the center who is not the point of view protagonist. So that's interesting. It meant that frequently we'd have a more comedy storyline in the A story with Michael and Dwight, for example, and then a more straight romantic B story with Jim and Pam. Greg used to say a thing I thought was very interesting, tonally. He said, separate out the scenes that are dramatic tone from the scenes that are comic tone. He called it the McDLT. They had this hamburger that was served hot in half the styrofoam container. And then in the other half of the styrofoam container was cold lettuce and tomato. And the gimmick was that you buy it and then they put it together and the hot stays hot and the cold stays cold. That was what he used to say. Keep the hot side hot and the cold side cold. The funny side funny and the drama side dramatic. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I talked a long time with Rain about this. I was probably too nice to him, but I think in the history of television, you are hard-pressed to find any comedy duo that was better than Dwight mm-hmm. and Michael. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think was special about their relationships and the, and the way they were written mm-hmm. that brought such comedy gold? I remember asking Rain one time about uh, his view of Dwight, and we came to realize that we were writing a character that was, you know, the nerd, the weirdo that you make fun of for comedy, but that the performer was doing something much bigger than that. He was not making fun of this guy. He was celebrating him. And it just seemed so obvious to him that that's what one would do. He said, yeah, you can't go around judging your character. You know, and you could see how much he loved Dwight. So he's bringing this genius that's very rain, this adoration for the marginal guy. And I mean, Steve Carell, known in the improv community as one of the greatest of all time. So it's really those two in combination. And yeah, the dynamic between them is something extraordinary too. What did what did you put? Uh, could you put your finger on what you thought was their essential dynamic? I think that they were two characters, both through the writing and the performances and their intention that were so perfect. Mm -hmm. All Michael wants is to be loved, right? Dwight loves him and all he wants is Michael's approval and acceptance. Mm -hmm. And it's almost as though because... Because that's the person that he really has. Yeah. He somewhere deep inside doesn't trust him. Uh-huh. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, like yeah. like not on the conscious level. Yeah. But that like, <laughs> so he, he shows disdain 
for him, for loving him, even though that's all he wants. Yeah. But Michael has to play as though he doesn't care for Dwight because there's other cooler people that really he should be friends with, right? It, it kind of attaches to that schoolyard, schoolyard. I'm, mm-hmm. in the, I'm in the 1950s all of a sudden, but like, <laughs> no, that like grade school thing where yeah. it's like, oh, I want to be, I want the popular kid, right? Yeah. I want Ryan. I want Jim. You know, the, those are the cool kids. Maybe it connects to that. Oh, I think you're right. That's exactly right. That's the funny irony of it is he <laughs> can't accept the adoration of the one guy who worships him. Um, right. But uh, you, uh, Brian, I think, have, have any of your guests just paused to kind of analyze what was great and is great about you as a comic performer? Oh, that's unnecessary. But <laughs> <laughs> When is that coming? I, I don't know. I mean, please go ahead if there's well, something you want to point say. Out. I mean, I can't stop you. Sure. Well, anybody who watches you perform, you know, can see it. But I, I thought that you had this tremendous collection of gifts in that you're obviously able to do real acting at any time. You know, you've got the big time dram- dramatic chops. But in addition, the comic uh, chops and the physicality, which is not easy. Um, I remember they allowed me to shoot a uh, webisode, a little four-parter that we got to do where- uh, Kevin's loan. Kevin's loan, where you're going to sell ice cream from a truck. And it was all fantastic. But the moment that stood out for me was we just had this bit where you had to walk out of the building holding a suitcase, a briefcase. Yes. And you know the instruction was, can you kind of just- stumble on the curb and the briefcase flaps open or something. I don't think we had it planned at all, but you did four takes. Each of them was just great. They were so real. And the, and the way you would turn back and try to close it, but give up. And, and I I was so impressed by that, especially when later I had opportunities to try to get physical comedy from other actors. And I found most of them can't even begin to do physical comedy. (laughs) Well, it's interesting because This had never occurred to me ever, ever until this moment. I remember very specifically the moment you're referencing um, from Kevin's loan. And I wonder if somewhere in the back of a writer's mind that led to Kevin spilling the chili. (laughs) It's possible. I'm glad you brought up Kevin spilling the chili. As you recall, I directed that scene. Yes. Written by Aaron Schur, a great collaboration of artists there. Um, Boy, it's possible. Ah, it was a cold open. Yeah. And the joke in the cold open really was this contradiction between the erudition of, uh, and in, in a way, kind of foodie arrogance of this recipe that you're delivering, yes. contrasting with as, as you know, guttural and lowly a visual as we can create. Right. Uh, I tell you, I remember with Kevin's chili, I was so uh, proud of you, Brian, that uh, we were like, okay, we're going to build a chili terrine with a fake bottom. So it'll look like it's filled, but then Brian won't have to carry 74 pounds right, of liquid right, right, chili. Right, right. you said, you looked at the, the expensive prop we created with a slanted bottom <laughs> so that it seemed to be filled and wasn't. And you were like, I'm going in real. <laughs> Bring me the big terrine. <laughs> you carried that incredibly heavy chili container. That was amazing. We only got two takes, as I recall, because- One. One take? I did that in one take. Of course. It is my, yeah. For whatever reason, it has become the thing yeah. for which I am known now. I own a sh- t-shirt with you uh, carrying the chili. Carrying the chili, yeah. it's uh, It has become the thing for me, for sure, and people always ask that. And I remember- um, I haven't told this story on here, but 
someone came to me before and we did it obviously at the end of the, the spilling part at the end of the day, everybody else was gone. It was just all the other actors were gone. It was just me. And they had cut a piece of carpet, right. That extended forever, like into the hallway around, uh, the reception desk over to Jim and Dwight's cluster there. Uh, because if the chili spilled on the carpet, they would screw up the carpet forever. So they came and they were like, Brian, we have three pieces of carpet. That's all we, that's all we can do. So we have to just to do that. But I, yeah, it was, it was one take. And I, and the reason I remember so well was I think in retrospect, despite three pieces of carpet, we didn't have three of me and how stained I was from even the first take. I don't think that I could have been, (laughs) been reset. Yeah. The moment when you chose to take like printer paper and try to mop up the chili is so brilliant. Everybody knows printer paper doesn't absorb at all. It's <laughs> yes. just this Sisyphean doomed effort to clean up. Oh, it's so great, Brian. Oh, well, I think of any thing that will live on for me way after I'm gone, that, that, <laughs> that meme or whatever will be it. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. 
is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Greg. Yes. Jen. Yes. And Mike Schur. Yes. All told me that their favorite or the best episode of The Office was business school. Wow. I'm humbled. Um, I mean, it's just so beautiful. I have been asked about this episode before. I always say that it's one of these very lucky coming togethers of uh, the experience of the writer and the experience of the actor in this case, Jenna, and maybe of artists in general. I mean, if you think about what we're trying to do, uh, it involves dreaming big that we could be special. And inevitably, we must encounter failure because none of us is great every time. And to get greatness, you have to put so much heart into it. You know, writing spec scripts for me, that's really what it's about. And, and there are moments in everyone's career, I imagine, when they go, oh my gosh, Am I going to be one of those people who who tried and didn't make it? You know, of course. Yeah, we, we all have basically almost been that person, and we know the feeling. Jenna Fisher, for sure. I mean, she auditioned for seven or eight years mm -hmm. before she was able to support herself. And so she really knows that feeling. That's what this is all a metaphor for. Hmm. Was there anything personal for you? Oh, that? yeah. Oh, yeah, big time. You know, uh, I really feel the relationship between um, a young, aspiring artist and uh, a father, you know, she feels like she has failed and her art has been called motel art by somebody whose taste she might respect. And here's a guy who she doesn't respect like you do with your dad, right? right? Who's saying, right. honey, you're great. And right. that's so beautiful and meaningful. Yeah. Um, Greg talked about something apparently called truth and beauty hmm. and wanted to find like stark truth and reality and mm -hmm. small moments mm -hmm. of beauty and connection between people like mm -hmm. the end of business school. Sure. Well, that's fundamental for sure. You know, what's interesting is you got to also remember it's a comedy. And I remember there were times when you could drift out of it. I specifically remember early on when I was a new writer there, they did a screening of an episode and 
everybody loved it. And I remember saying in the notes afterwards, guys, you have three scenes in a row where you're not even trying to be funny. And this statement was met by silence from the writers, by the way, to the point where I thought, do they not get it? And I repeated it multiple times. And then afterwards I went to Paul, I go, Paul, what happened? Did did people hear what I was saying? He goes, yeah, Brent, we heard it the first time. Stop pounding it into us. (laughs) But they had realized I guess that, oh yeah, shit, it's not a drama. You got to put comedy in there as well. That balance is so interesting in this art form. Yeah. Um, Do you remember, so, you know, we have the writer's strike. We also have a huge recession that happens during the show. Yeah. Um, I'm going to reference a few of your episodes here, but the economy started tanking. Were you writing those outside realities into um, episodes of the show business school obviously is an example that you specifically wrote Michael's lack of touch of business and where business was going, mm-hmm. but there's also money where Michael takes a second job because mm-hmm. he, he can't make ends meet. Yeah. And there was also, you know, the storyline of saber came yeah. at a time Comcast was coming in and taking yeah. over. Was that an intentional thing? You just got kind of a glint in your eye. Yeah, well, I about remember BJ, BJ Novak was very kind of aware of these uh, trends in technology. You know, with Woof, I always thought was so prescient. It's such a perfect takedown of of a internet startup. And Greg too. You know, Greg is always way ahead of trends. I don't know where he finds the time to read The Economist or whatever he's doing. But I mean, he, he did. We did an episode. I remember at the time it was called China. But I don't know what it ever aired as. Greg no, that was, was it. There was one called China. Okay, good, good, yeah. Uh, and that was that was you know Greg realizing, oh shit, China's going to take over the world economy. And what if Michael reads an article about this in a dentist's office? Um, but yeah, trend awareness. Some of those smart writers were were all over that. And Savers is an example for sure. Um, do you remember Comcast taking over? No, I don't. Do you remember? Was there? Yeah. Well, one of the things that Paul um, talked about was timing that Comcast came in and took over and there was no history with the show. You know, the ratings were declining. Mm -hmm. We know now it just kept declining on every show everywhere because people were starting to watch streaming, but the office was declining. And so they were confronted with this new entity. Here's their biggest show, and Steve Carell is leaving. Mm-hmm. So we need to bring in another star. And that was that was Paul's take on it, which I didn't know, like that somebody else needed to come in. I don't know. Where did mm-hmm. you net out on that as an idea moving forward? Well, what you're saying makes a lot of sense because there was an obvious uh, consensus creatively that, yeah, we don't need to add anyone at all. In fact, as I recall, it was virtually unanimous that people felt Dwight should become the new uh, Michael and should take over the office. It just seemed obvious to us. And the fact that that there was pushback to that was contentious creatively for us. Mm. So I do remember that. I, I didn't realize that it was coinciding with this takeover, which makes a lot of sense. When did you find out that Steve was going to be leaving? I thought that it was sort of known he had a seven-year contract and uh, I remember early on hanging with Steve and him saying, apropos of nothing, this is the greatest television show that I will ever be a part of. I remember being struck by that because he was not an old man right. at the end of his career. Right. I've never met somebody who, in the midst of doing something great, says this is as good as it will ever get. And he didn't mean it pessimistically. He meant it exactly the opposite. Just look how incredible this show is. So 
him leaving to me always felt like he had intended to do seven seasons. That was what he had portioned his energy for, and he had made his artistic statement that he'd always conceived of doing and was always going to move on. So it seemed to me like the most undramatic thing in the world, mm. but of course, creatively for a TV show, the most challenging thing in the world. What do you do when your star leaves and you're going to try to continue doing the show? And I love the way the show responded, by the way. It's such a series of lessons in uh, TV making. Yeah. So you weren't concerned about the show moving forward, but you were more excited about finding out what comes next? Well, I was oblivious to what was going to be the big challenges there. Greg was not. He Greg sat the writers down at one point and said, watch what will happen. He said, criticism comes in cycles. And so, you know, it starts out, the office isn't getting ratings, but look at this champ from coming from behind and now it's great. And he goes, the next stage of the narrative will be the office has lost its mojo. So yeah. he prepared us for that. He said it happened on Saturday Night Live. And yeah. then he goes, if you stick around long enough, then the narrative becomes the office is back. Yeah. Saturday Night Live is back. So <laughs> it seemed like that was inevitable. Yeah. Um, I feel like the last season and then certainly the finale, but, but really the whole last season is grossly underappreciated. <laughs> I feel like one thing I'm very proud about the show is that it was a show that had a beginning and had a middle and then it had an end. Yeah. And, and the reveal of the documentary crew was such an important element to telling the full story and having the characters see themselves exposed in a way. Um, it was very interesting as, as an actor. Quite brilliant in its conception. Pure Greg, he knew from the very start, he came into season nine saying, here's how we're going to do the finale. Um, the documentary will finally air. And he also had in mind this idea that there would be a reunion show in the finale and that the word reunion would come to mean two things as Pam and Jim would have split up and would have a reunion in that episode. As I mentioned earlier, yes. it was so painful for the audience to explore the breakup of Jim and Pam that we put the brakes on it. Basically, you can see them getting to separation and then it just was unpleasant for everyone and we bailed on it. They they come back together sort of off screen, really, and they are together in the reunion. They don't have to have a reunion in that episode. Yeah. How did Jenna and John feel about them potentially splitting up? Well, they seemed very much involved and on board for everything. You know, it was really cool in season nine, the way the actors were invited into the writer's room more than usual. Tell us everything you've ever wanted to do on this show, because this is our last chance. Right. And and Jenna and John, my recollection is they both are EPs in season nine as well, and were invited to have serious creative input. I remember John saying something very cool and interesting where he was like, this last season is for the fans. Imagine them as your primary audience. We don't have to build an audience now. This is it. Let's give them the thing they most want. And that informed a lot of creative decisions. Yeah. Um, are you happy with how the show ended? Yes, very much so. Yeah. Uh, it, I remember going to the screening and the, f the emotions that I felt watching it with everybody who was involved were, were so warm and positive. Now, just even saying that shows you how completely non-objective my experience of the ending is. You may have noticed that Greg, who wrote the episode, 
uh, he cast into it tons of people who worked behind the scenes. And you, your is that your acting debut on The Office? It certainly is. Yes. Uh, and you know what Greg was doing was creating a kind of yearbook for himself, where he managed to photograph all these people that he cared about. So when he watches that episode, it's an emotional reunion for him too. I want to point out, Brian, that before I went on camera in that finale episode. Uh, I turned to you and I said, Brian, how do you act? I have to deliver a line. What is acting? <laughs> and we had two minutes for you to tell me how to deliver a line. And I'll never forget what you told me. Okay, here's what it was. The line I had to say was something like I had to say to, to Jim and Pam, um, now that you've seen you got yourselves on, on TV, you know, what was it like after all those years watching yourself on TV? And I said, how do, how do I do this? And you said, okay, so... Uh, Brent, so, um, you know, these guys have just seen themselves on TV, right? So just ask them, ask them, you know, what was it like to see themselves on TV? I was like, okay. And that was it. You just, <laughs> you just kind of translated it into just imagine it's really happening. Right. Uh, that was pretty right. brilliant. <laughs> Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including... Actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. 
comedian, writer and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. So when you think about The Office, when a fan is watching the show, obviously the actors are the face of that show. And the actors have gone on to do many things afterwards. But I started thinking about you and... Jen Salata and uh, Mike Schur and all of the great writers that came out of the writer's room, the tree of Greg Daniels. And here in the last, let's say seven years, mm -hmm. um, these are the shows that have been headed mm -hmm. uh, by uh, old writers of the office, Space Force, mm -hmm. Love, Parks and Rec, The Mindy Project, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Good Place, Master of None, Superstore, Newsroom, Hello Ladies, Four Weddings and a Funeral, mm -hmm. Q-Force, Little America, Smilf, People of Earth, Bad Teacher, Trophy Wife, Champions, Guys with Kids, Central Park, Ghosted, Platform, Never Have I Ever, Champions, Sunnyside, and Abbeys. I mean, that is an incredible list of shows and shows really that you guys um, were the all-stars of, of this creative ensemble. Mm -hmm. Well, Greg Daniels is really good at picking writers. I've always said the guy who's best at picking actors is Judd Apatow, and the best at picking writers is Greg. He's great at it. He reads scripts, and he can tell from reading a script uh, whether a writer is good or not to a level that is unusual. And so he's brought up some really, really great writers and then brought them up in a process, you know, that dates back a long time. We're all trained up in these rooms and then we, we bring our wisdom to new rooms. And so the office is this distillation of quite a lot of TV running wisdom, you know, that, that Greg brings and was shared amongst them. And then now is, you know, dissipated amongst these other shows. Yeah. It's crazy. I also heard Greg takes really long meetings. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, the meeting with a writer for Greg. Yes. Oh, it's crazy. I mean, uh, 
Robert Padnick may have been the longest uh, writer's meeting ever. I think he was there for 12 hours or something. The kind of thing that you can only do to somebody in their 20s. But Greg really liked to observe the writer. And Greg felt that he could not effectively observe the writer while talking to that writer face-to-face. So what he would do is he would call some other writer in. Jens, can you come up here and meet this writer, Robert Padnick? And so Jen Salata would have a conversation with Padnick and Greg would sit at like a 45 degree angle and just stare at Robert Padnick, you know, <laughs> and then he would do that with eight, 10 writers uh, and take it very, very seriously. It's a very wrenching thing to get rid of a writer. So you want to hire one with a lot of confidence when you go in. Right. You know, people talk about what the legacy of The Office is. Certainly, these shows and the good work that's done on so many of them is a legacy of the show. Yes. I know that uh, Greg and others hope for more of a legacy in terms of of tone. You know, Greg thought that maybe The Office would change the tone of television a little bit more in the direction of realism, grounded acting, um, unhurried plot telling. And all of those things that we think of as the platinum qualities of The Office. But it doesn't seem to have been that way. Mm. That even the next mockumentary show, Modern Family, is structured much more like a, a traditional show than, than The Office. Yeah. Why do you think the show is bigger now mm-hmm. than it was when we were NBC's top scripted show? I have my theories. One is just the quality of the show is 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 truly something different. Uh, for sure, the sense of family that radiates from a great TV show is the emotional attraction. Uh, a great writer named Mike Reese, original Simpsons guy, told me that the secret to every hit network TV show is subtext of family. I believe that's true. Definitely true of The Office, and it's it's true of the actors of The Office as well. You can feel that love that they have for each other and the respect they have for each other as performers. Uh, That's part of it. I also think, though, that there are certain shows that make you feel good about liking them. People liked Frasier more than they actually liked it because it made them feel smart. Those little, you know, it goes to black and you see kind of a written title for this little chapter of Frasier. Boy, am I smart that I like Frasier is the feeling that gives you. And The Office has a little bit of that. You know, you can tell there's something taste-making about this has to do with behavior over banter, priority on realism, small, real. uh, These were phrases that flowed through the writer's room and are the hallmarks of good taste in drama and comedy. So the young people know that they have good taste by liking it. Yeah. What are you most proud of about the show? Oh, gosh. I watched the whole thing from beginning to end with my daughter when she was 14. And... That gave me an emotional connection to the show that was even greater than what I had when I was there. And it makes me very proud to be part of that. It it makes my daughter look up to me just a little bit, which is <laughs> extremely unusual and that's rare. Nice. I'll yes. take it. Yeah, that's nice. Um, Brent, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure to talk with you. I mean, your writing, your contribution to the show, your directing – and all of the heart and soul that you put into it um, is awesome. So Thank you, Brian. Well, as you know, it was a great pleasure doing The Office with you, and I can't wait to see what we do next. Exactly. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. Nice. Brian, Thanks, what buddy. a pleasure, man. Thank Not you again. so much You are such a great in. actor. 
Ah, oh, I love being around great actors. Well, it's a pleasure. That is very nice. What a delight that was. Plus, he called me a great actor, so there's that. But in truth, Brent, just as a way of putting a smile on your face, or at least my face, I can't see your faces. I'm just going to assume you're smiling too. Uh, Brent, thank you so much for coming in. I am very glad that you were able to win over the writers with your British accent and survival guides. <laughs> the show would not have been the same without you. And to all of you listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe, follow, leave us a review. It's so important. And I so appreciate all of you who have done so, so far uh, until we meet again, which I'm guessing is next week. <laughs> I hope you all have an exceptional week. The Office Deep Dive is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Ling Lee. Our senior producer is Tessa Kramer. Our producer is Adam Macias. Our associate producer is Emily Carr. And our assistant editor is Diego Tapia. My main man in the booth is Alec Moore. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by my great friend, Creed Bratton. And the episode was mixed by Seth Olansky. Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. 
You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.